You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on the topic of vesicular stomatitis in horses with Dr. Angela Pelzel-McCluskey. I'm your host, Kim Brown, editor of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2023 by Merck Animal Health. Angela Pelzel-McCluskey, DVMMS, is a national equine epidemiologist for the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service Veterinary Services. She is based in Fort Collins, Colorado. She's been a guest several times on this podcast to help us better understand infectious diseases in horses. Thank you, Dr. Pelzel-McCluskey, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about vesicular stomatitis in horses. Thanks so much, Kim. Happy to be here. Well, according to a USDA APHIS report, since the start of the 2023 vesicular stomatitis outbreak, which started on 517, 119 VSV-affected premises have been identified in two states, California and Texas, and 116 of those have been equine-only clinically affected. So That's correct. This is a little scary to be starting like this, but let's let's back up a little bit because vesicular stomatitis in the past has been fairly regional to specific areas of the country, and and we're seeing some differences now. And tell us about the vesicular stomatitis virus. The virus itself, Kim, is pretty innocuous. It, it's not a super scary virus, but it does cause some pretty nasty lesions. And these are vesicular lesions, meaning they're blister-like. And they usually form on the muzzle, the nose, the tongue, the ears, uh, around the coronary bands, and sometimes on the udder and sheath. And they, they occur where the biting flies bite the horse and place the virus. So they're nasty-looking lesions, but the horse is usually not too badly affected by it. The horses heal on their own with just a little bit of supportive care. So the virus itself is not deadly to horses, and it it certainly doesn't cause anything that lasts more than a couple of weeks. But it does cause some pretty serious trade ramifications for the United States when we get an outbreak. And it also prevents movement of livestock, especially horses, in between states while we have an outbreak going on in certain areas. So it's impactful to the U.S. equine industry for movement purposes, usually. Okay. And how common is vesicular stomatitis? I mean, it's not something we hear about in every state. That's true. So usually um, the virus, we have incursion years and expansion years, but we're not endemic for the virus. So what happens is the virus normally circulates in the biting flies in southern Mexico. And in certain years, we have climate factors that support the movement of those vectors northward. And when that happens, we usually get spillover onto the U.S. border states first, and then it usually shoots up the front range of Colorado and Wyoming, and it also kind of hits a lot of the southwestern area, so Arizona, New Mexico, West Texas. Those are all commonly affected areas, and when we have outbreak years, those are the places where you are used to seeing the cases occur. So how common is it and how is it spread? We talked about the flies coming up from Mexico. 
Yeah, so there's three main vectors that we know about. Um, the black flies, the sand flies, and biting midges, which are all in the Culicoides species family. Those are the three main vectors that we know transmit vesicular stomatitis. And all of those vectors really like horses. So that, that's why we tend to get hit pretty hard in the equine population. But we think that there are other insect vectors that certainly could transmit this virus as well. And what are the clinical signs? If a if a veterinarian gets a call from a horse owner and sit and they say something, they may not recognize. I mean, like you said, the these are unusual lesions. They are. So I think the most common lesions are the oral lesions and the lesions around the, the coronary bands. So usually you'll see the blistering around the muzzle and the lips of the horse. And the first thing that an owner might see is that the horse may be reluctant to eat its grain or hay. And they also may catch the horse drooling. If the horse is drooling, that usually means it has tongue lesions and they can slough whole portions of their tongue, which is very painful. And it makes them not want to eat or drink. Um, and then you'll see that drooling and that that inappetence. So that's usually the first sign that an owner might see. Um, or if it just hits the coronary bands, you might see a little bit of lameness as well as those blister lesions along the coronary bands. So those are some indications that you need, need to call your veterinarian and get some samples taken so that we can confirm or deny with testing. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Banamine, Flunix and Meglamine injection from Merck Animal Health. The pioneer NSAID for horses in the U.S., Banamine goes to work quickly to alleviate pain and inflammation from musculoskeletal disorders and visceral pain from colic to horses in your care. Don't get caught on call without Banamine. Find out more at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Do not use Banamine in horses intended for human consumption. The effect of Banamine paste on pregnancy has not been determined. See product label for complete safety information. Can vesicular stomatitis even be treated? It can, um, but it's supportive care. It's not a very specific treatment. Um, I think one thing we need to be really careful of is vesicular stomatitis can be transmitted to humans, and it doesn't get transmitted to humans from the flies. Rather, it gets transmitted to us by handling lesioned horses. So when we're touching those lesions, we're getting the virus on our hands. And while these horses are licking and smacking their lips, which are very painful with the lesions, they're also snorting and blowing virus kind of all over the place. So you have to be really careful when you're handling potentially lesioned horses, that you wear gloves, that you handle them last, obviously, and isolate them as best you can. But you also want to wash your hands after handling them, and you want to keep your face out away from in front of the horse, who's going to have all of this discharge and slobbering and snorting that can blow it all over you. Those are very good uh, recommendations for vets and techs that are in owners who are out with this. So we mentioned, and I want to go back to this because I think this is really important because some people think, you know, maybe the horse just has minor lesions and they are really wanting to go to a show or they they are on a premises and their horse is fine, but other horses have had it. And there is travel restrictions and, and it's really a responsibility of the owners. But how can veterinarians help owners understand how critical it is that they obey some of these restrictions that are placed on them? 
Absolutely. Great question. So the virus itself is in the lesions. That means the horse, while its lesions are healing, can transmit that virus by direct contact to other horses or through sharing feed or water bunks with other horses. And so the key point about why we have movement restrictions from state to state when we have an outbreak is because we don't want to move the virus by moving the animals. And so it's every horse owner's responsibility to make sure that they're not the cause of new transmission of this virus to another premises. They also have a lot of control over making sure that their horse doesn't spread the virus to other horses on the same premises by isolating it and by not allowing it to share feeder water sources for a while. So the owner really has a strong responsibility here to prevent further spread. And I think most owners would want to do that. This is a very painful, nasty disease for a couple of weeks for the horse. And certainly an owner would not want to be responsible for causing an outbreak at another location. And for veterinarians, I still remember that one of the first uh, times a veterinarian in Texas said that they had encountered vesicular stomatitis, said the horse was drooling, it wasn't eating, he wasn't, you know, he was new to Texas, reached in to grab the horse's tongue to pull it out of the way so he could look in there and the whole epithelium of the tongue sloughed off into his hand. And he was like, this is not good. Correct. The horse didn't think it was any good either, believe me. Um, those are very painful lesions and they do take several weeks to heal, but um, they can be a little bit obvious, like in that situation that you described where you go, oh, wow, that's not good. I found why the horse isn't eating, right? And I found out why he's drooling right here. Yeah. And veterinarians can help their owners. And what would you suggest to veterinarians that might be some things that they could say to owners that would emphasize how important it is to not let these to, to watch these horses and not let them contaminate the feed and the water and transmit this. Yeah, so I think um, all horse owners need to be on alert whenever we have an outbreak in the U.S., no matter what state you're located in. Um, and the reason for that is because we can actually prevent transmission on any premises by doing really good vector control and really good biosecurity. So as soon as you see, for either from our USDA situation reports or from alerts on the Equine Disease Communication Center, as soon as you see we have cases of VSV in the United States, states, you need to immediately be enacting an enhanced level of biosecurity and vector control. We have got to keep flies off of horses. The reason for that is we can't prevent flies from moving around. We have nothing at all that stops biting midges from moving across the country on wind currents. So, because the flies are going to move, we absolutely have to make sure that we stop the cycle and not allow the flies to interact with the horses. And that's where the owner is 100% in control for what happens on your premises and how you keep flies off of horses and also how you enact biosecurity so that you keep lesioned horses from coming to your premises during an outbreak. And we talked a little earlier about the outbreak that's going on in California. And that's that's a little unusual. I mean, we haven't seen VS in California for a, a long time. I'm sure you know the dates, but can you tell us a little bit about the outbreak and why maybe we're seeing more cases and more premises this year? 
This is a super interesting situation from a research standpoint and from a climate standpoint. So the last time California had cases of vesicular stomatitis, it was in the early to mid 1980s. And that was actually an animal movement that happened from infected dairy cattle that moved from another state and brought the virus to California. That's what caused their outbreak many years ago. They've never had in the last 50 or more years of recorded history, a naturally occurring outbreak that wasn't the result of an animal movement. But in this situation, it was a result of infected vectors moving upward from Mexico and bringing the virus with them. And that is so interesting right now, because normally Southern California, where this outbreak is occurring, um, has a really huge heat dome and also a drought, extreme drought region in that part of the state. And that normally has a protective effect from them. It doesn't allow the insect vectors to really propagate and get going. But because just since January, they've had lots of snow and lots of rain, you've heard all about the disasters being caused down there from that. Um, that has allowed the vector populations, which carry this virus, to literally just explode in population. And so we have all three infected vectors, the black flies, the sand flies, and the culicoides biting midges. All three of those active vectors are occurring right now in Southern California and driving part of this outbreak. And they're spreading the virus amongst each other, and then they're spreading it on to horses and other susceptible livestock. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that, that folks need to be paying attention to. I mean, like you said, it's been 50 years since a natural outbreak. So we need to keep in mind some of the things that are happening around us as horse owners, as veterinarians, so that we can maybe be more prepared for this. So is there anything else that you would like to talk about vesicular stomatitis? Well, I think we have to be prepared in the coming future that the climate changes that are occurring right now in the United States are really impacting all of our vector-borne diseases, including vesicular stomatitis. Um, so I want to take you back to 2020. We had an outbreak of vesicular stomatitis that started normally that year, um, but ended up spreading way too far east. Uh, we had a huge nidus of the infection that was centered over the Kansas and Missouri region. And that was really shocking because we had not had cases of VSV in that region since the 1930s. And those were all caused by animal movements. So a vector-borne and vector-driven outbreak that far east was really shocking to us. It was not in the Rocky Mountain region and the southwestern U.S. where we expected it to be. Additionally, in 2020, we should have had a recurrence of the 2019 outbreak in the Rocky Mountains, the Colorado, Wyoming, Utah region. And we waited and waited in 2020 for that to appear and nothing happened. That was also climate driven. So we had an extreme drought situation over the Rocky Mountain region in 2020. And it actually shut down the incursion and the expansion of VSV in that area where we really should have had it that year. So all of these different climate factors really change the incursion, expansion and scope and the geography of where a lot of our vector-borne diseases are hitting us, including VSV. So I think we have to be really cognizant of that in the future because places where we never had this disease before, 
like California have had to learn about it and have been hit by it. And horse owners have been very surprised um, to have encountered this disease and have had to fight it. So I think we all need to probably take a note from that, that we're not protected by the historic geography of where some of these vector-borne diseases have hit in the past, that because of these climate factors changing, uh, we need to be ready for things to be different in the future. Well, that is uh, a great point to end on today. And we really appreciate you, Dr. Paulson McCluskey, for joining us on Disease Du Jour. And a big thanks to our audience for listening to us. And we really want to thank um, our 2023 sponsor, Merck Animal Health, for just giving us the space to be able to talk about some of these topics. And if you as our audience have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com.